everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. We're actually recording this from a hotel room in Warwick, Rhode Island. My first time in Rhode Island. I've got Jim Kuman here with me. Hey, Jim. Hey, how's it going, Chuck? <laughs> we are here doing... Well, why don't you explain what we're doing? Because I, <clears throat> I just... You just got dropped in off a plane. And yeah, I just arrived, and uh, you were here, like setting everything up, doing the hard work. We are. Uh, we partnered with the New England chapter, the Institute. Inst- wow, we are partnering with the New England chapter, of the ITE. I'll just leave it at that, since I can't spell it Is out. Is that today. Institute of Traffic Engineers? Transportation Engineers. Transportation, yeah, transportation Engineers. engineers. Yeah. I just uh, my voice got fried from the, uh, from a, the happy hour. A bunch of uh, engineer geeks today. Yeah, my, my brethren. They were yes. really cool. They were fantastic, and yeah. I think um, there is a, a certain percentage of them that really, really believes it and really gets it, and are trying to figure out how they turn around this dinosaur of, of an organization and of a thought process as a field uh, to be able to make room for something different than the status quo that we know doesn't work. It was interesting today because as I spoke to the group, there was the the breakdown that I experienced a lot. Where, and I, I hate to come back to just age all the time. But there is this kind of recurring theme where the younger the younger people in the crowd who have maybe more um, open minds about some of this stuff haven't been doing it for decades uh, just are smiling at me. They're nodding their heads. They're it's it's almost like they're thanking me as I'm speaking. While some of the people who are let's say a little more seasoned have been around have done this generation you know like decade after decade uh, sit there with their arms crossed. And give me the frowns and say, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really sure about this. But I have to say, by the end of the day, by the, you know, we we were with them for six hours. Mm-hmm. By the end of the day, we pretty much had everybody talking at least. And I, I do think identified a, a bunch of people who uh, are going to be those kind of change agents within the profession. It's not going to change overnight, but I think there's enough young people. There's enough new ideas coming up uh, that uh, for people that want to see change that I'm I'm optimistic when we have a day like this. Yeah, and amongst the seasoned crowd, I have to say that uh, when we were on it, we took a, we had three hours in the morning to, to speak, and then we had a walking tour, which was fantastic because this part of the town where we're in uh, is is a very a whole mix of different types of places all smashed up against each other, which creates a pretty interesting walking tour when you walk straight through the cross section of that. You have sort of various different types of roads, and you have a nice residential neighborhood, which is old, but it doesn't look old, but it is sort of still acting old, and a lot of different shades of gray. It's, it's a lot of, you don't know exactly what to do with all these different parts of it. Is it 50 shades of gray? It's maybe at least 50 shades of gray. <laughs> maybe at least. And so the, the thing about the seasoned folks is that they would say really interesting things that actually were very profound as a as thought processes. Yeah. I always go back to people who want to be modernist architects, right? And they, they want to do great modernist work. And I always look back and, and, and say, okay, well, that's great. But the problem with most modernist architecture today is that they didn't get trained classically. They don't understand proportion. They don't understand some of the basic underpinnings that made the early modern architects really great because they, they had the principles, they had the training. They sure, had. Sure. And I think some of the folks who are the seasoned folks 
do have that set of principles about you're supposed to approach things in a certain way. You're supposed to you're supposed to, to, to use the right of way to its fullest extent, but you also have to leave flexibility for the future. So I kind of felt as though that there were there were folks in the crowd who really understood that we should be doing things more incrementally. We should be doing things uh, in a way that allows somebody else in the future to make a different decision. We got to an intersection today where there was a hotel uh, basically driveway, meeting a funeral home, meeting a single family house, meeting like another commercial property. And this intersection was so dysfunctional because you could tell it was just patched together over time. Right, right. And, and someone said, look, at what point did we, did, 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 how many engineers were involved in like creating different components of this? And at what point did we say this place just broke down and doesn't work anymore, mm -hmm. right? And just didn't start to stick on the patch on top of a situation that was already in bad shape. And it was interesting because it was the seasoned folks who actually were speaking up more often and saying, this is really screwed up. Like when we were actually out there walking right. and, and trying to talk through these ideas. So I think it was really uh, a great opportunity to sort of look at how we got to approach things differently. Uh, but I think that in different forms and different ways, different people um, you know feel comfortable talking about it. You know, in in in, in as opposed to maybe in the classroom setting where it, it appears to be uh, an affront on their entire career path, <laughs> which it does often come off. Uh, oh no, come on! <laughs> hey, you know all those roads you built? They all really uh, are terrible for us. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> there's I know. a little bit of that. It happens. Yeah, it does happen. A Somebody little bit. had to design all those roads. They didn't happen by themselves. Yeah, no, and it seemed like a logical thing to do at the time, right? Speaking of roads designing themselves, yeah, is that a sign of a strong town? <laughs> Where the Strodes design themselves, <laughs> or or we have Strodes, or do we have no Strodes? <laughs> I don't know. You know, the, one of the one of the interesting the kind of side conversations today was, okay, you, you've got the Strode to street conversion, you've got the Strode to road conversion. We get that, but what about these places that aren't really salvageable? And we, you know, you and I have struggled with that mightily. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm an admirer of the work of people like Ellen Dunham Jones and, and others who have worked on the suburban retrofit. But I point out often that the percent of our landscape that is suburban, auto oriented, that can actually be successfully retrofit is very, very small, not just from an economic standpoint, but by definition, when you're retrofitting these places, you're creating a lot more. Uh, units, a lot more maturity. If you want to use a planner's term that I hate, a lot more density. You know, you, you're, you're putting more things in one place. And when you do that, that means that the the infill or the stuff that would go in the other places you're trying to retrofit, you've essentially absorbed that market already. So yeah. successful sprawl repair, if we want to call it that, uh, kind of hastens the demise of the rest of the marginal stuff. Yeah. So there isn't a way to sprawl repair all of America. <laughs> yeah. So we have this even whole... Even if we had an endless pile of money to put into that. Even if we had an endless pile of money, we, we don't have the number of people to absorb everything that we would retrofit. So the question really becomes, you know, what happens to these places where your strode can't become a, a productive street, your strode can't become a productive road, uh, it's just going to have a bunch of dying strip malls. What what happens? Yeah, and I don't think anybody's quite answered that. I I know we haven't. 
to, well, to my satisfaction. And to the other end of the spectrum, um, we're here in the Northeast. And we're happy to be back. It's been a long time since we've been in the Northeast for a significant amount of time. And uh, the question here, especially as we're going to be moving to Western Massachusetts tomorrow, where there's a higher concentration of towns that are barely still alive. Right. You know, 300 year old settlements. Despite having like great bones and all the things that like the new urbanists would say, here's what you have to have. Right. They're there. They're dead. These places are dead. The places are dead. Dead and struggling. And and so, you know, that's the other end of the spectrum. And so people say, well, we can't fit complete streets into, you know, our very narrow right of ways that are on 300 year old, you know, roads, you know, around swamps and through rivers and like the the right of ways, what we have, what are we supposed to do? I was like, well, the good news is that you actually don't need to have a tremendous amount of mobility in this region because you have hundreds of years worth of walkable places laying around. Right. Just waiting to salvage. Right. right, Waiting for someone to put them back together. And so do we have to worry about how we get millions of people in and out of Boston every day so they can go to their work? No, we're going to probably adjust our economy so that people don't have to be in commuting situations for whether it's in a car or in a train or any other you know transportation mechanism. They're going to decide that we're just going to walk right. and we're going to go out to a town and we're going to take our tech startup or our biomed startup and the other things that are major economy drivers out here in the Northeast and in this part of the country, you know, biomed is a huge part. These things that don't need to be in any particular place, they're going to find, they're going to be nearby enough to, to, the, to the larger economy that they can go to uh, a Holyoke, uh, a Northampton, some of the places that we've been told about out in Western Massachusetts yeah. that are that have this, these gorgeous buildings, this great walkable pattern and no people. Right. And we don't have to actually find a way to put 10-lane freeways from from Springfield uh, and, the, and its nearby towns into Boston because... You know, those places are just good enough by themselves. Right. We right. don't have to figure out how to make some sort of six-ring uh, city region, right, where everybody comes in from the edge and goes into the center. And so it's a very different pattern than maybe in other places in the country. But the good news is what they lack in right-of-way, they, uh, they make up for with lots of salvageable places that could become great again and affordable, which is the other major problem in this region too damn expensive to live right, anywhere near right. wherever Which wants is, to live. is such a strange dichotomy with all the great stuff that is right. underutilized and then you have these huge affordability problems. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I wanted to b- – before we left on this trip, I actually recorded a podcast where I talked about the Strongtown Strength Test and it, it, was a, it was a crappy podcast and so I deleted it. And I said, okay – I'm going to get uh, Jim, and we're going to talk about this together. We did try to do this over the phone, but it had some technical difficulties. I, I wanted a chance to chat with people because there's a lot of people who listen to the podcast who don't read the blog. I wanted to get them exposed to this Strongtown Strength Test because I, I found this to be one of the more brilliant things to come out of the National Gathering this year. Do you want to – or you want me to talk about what – kind of inspired this notion, why we came up with this and what we were trying to do. Let you start and I'll fill Okay. We're, we're sitting around, you know, one of the things that we, we did, we were able to do at the, at the National Gallery was just meet with a lot of people and have just a lot of ongoing, really good conversation. One of the evenings we were having dinner with Andrew Burleson and Andrew started telling us about this thing called the Joel test. Now, Andrew's a geek programmer. Uh, he, he, you know, he's a, he's a really great urban design guy too. And he gets, you know, he's a great new urbanist, but he makes his living doing computer programming. He's a really adept programmer, 
one of the things he was explaining, and, and I'm going to screw this up because I, I don't know all the lingo, but supposedly there is this test that people can go through to determine whether they're using best practices in the profession. And it's a long, long certification process. He kind of described it in a way that reminded me of LEAD, lead uh, the, the notion that you would go through and certify this process and certify that process. There's this guy, and I, I don't know his name, full name, but his, it goes by Joel is his first name. And Joel made this observation that you can go through and do all this certification and read all this stuff and spend literally years trying to figure all this out. Or you could just follow these 10, 12 basic guidelines. And if you do these 10, 12 basic guidelines, you're probably doing the right thing. And they were simple things like, you know, do you back up your work? Do you process your metadata in a timely manner? Do you, you know, keep track of this algorithm or that algorithm or whatever it is from a computer standpoint? This didn't get in the entire depth of everything it meant to be a good programmer. But what it did is it established kind of some basic back of the envelope kind of, you know, understandings that, you know, if you're doing these things, you're probably doing the other things right. Mm -hmm. the, the other things under the hood are probably operating the correct way. So now in the computer programming profession, people, when they advertise their firm, when they advertise their services or what have you, uh, or when they're trying to attract new employees, they'll say, we, we score a 10 out of 12 on the Joel test. Uh, and it's kind of become a vernac you know, part of the vernacular in this industry to determine who's doing a good job and who's not. We said, all right, we should do the same thing for cities. And we should really look and say, for Strong Town, what are those things that we can stand back and kind of look at? Maybe scratch a, a little bit under the surface, but not have to go real, real deep and get a real sense of, okay, is this place going in the right direction or not? Is this place one that has got things figured out uh, or not, and, and really walk away with a sense of, yeah, here's a here's here's ten items. Let's go down this list. See where you score. If you're scoring a, an eight, nine, ten, uh, you're really doing a really good job. A, a real strong town should be able to say yes to all ten. So we asked people at the national gathering, what would those things be? When you walk into a city, if it's a strong town, what do you expect to see? And we came up with like eighty different things. We took some time, pared them down, tried to work on the, the wording, and we released last month uh, a set of 10 principles, a set of 10 uh, items that we call the Strong Town Strength Test. Is that a good? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you went back and did all that because I forgot about those pieces. I was started from a very completely different spot, <laughs> but that was very important because I think it goes back to this thought process of, well, how do you define a strong town? And how do you explain that definition without getting into some long, windy road of jargon and things, words that we've made up and like technical calculations of more jargon divided by more jargon. This is madness. Times jargon. Yeah. And, and so there has to be an eye <laughs> test, right? Like we, we can't get, we, we have to have, we're, we're trying to speak with regular folks, not just people within the silos of professional uh, uh, industry, right, within right. city planning and city city engineering and um, city everything else, if you're outside of all those things, you're just somebody who lives in a town, 
how could you tell if you lived in a strong town or not? Right. And we wanted to find that metric, and we also wanted to find a way that would be open-ended enough to allow the evolution of the definition of a strong town. Right. Because there's there's got to be more to it than than simply can we calculate uh, simply can we calculate the um, pieces of the puzzle that um, are all about math, right? Costs and assets. Uh, and uh, costs and and, and, and revenues and, and exp- it's my uh, expenses oh, okay. and revenues. So we we have to kind of be able to do the eye test, and hopefully the eye test actually is deep enough. And we'll talk about a couple of these that there's got to be if the eye test is working, the underlying pieces of what makes that eye test even possible or plausible have to be there, and, and that maybe gets to more of the more jargony things that. Uh, we we've talked a lot about it, and in in the analysis is like Taco John's or talking about things like Strode. What's behind those pieces to make that work? Well, I, I think the thing I like about this too is that uh, there are many many ways to accomplish these things. Yeah, it, it isn't just a one size fits all. So let let let's talk about some of these. Number one, here's here's the number one thing on the strength test. Take a photo of your main street at midday. Does the picture show more people than cars? What are we getting at there? We're getting at, do you have people? Right. Are they anywhere near the street, <laughs> a town, like a place? Uh, do you have <laughs> Do you have a main street? Where, where would you even take said picture? Right, right. There, there's there are a lot of different ways, depending on what part of the country you're in, what kind of place you're in. Uh, we, we, we need to start with a couple of assumptions, but and then also a couple of... Uh, what do we value here in our community? One of the central parts of the the, the new transportation dialogue we've been out doing, uh, the transportation of the next American city, is that when we're building productive places, when we're building places that create wealth in a community, they are at their very nature human-centric. They're scaled around people. They're built around people. And so to me, th- this one, especially as the number one criteria – kind of gets right exactly to what we have found is a productive place. If, if you go there in the middle of the day when you would expect that you, you know, the, the most transactions are going on, the most uh, robust you know, economic uh, you know, interaction is going on, all the complex social interactions that happen in a great place, all those should be happening at midday. And if you're not seeing people out there, if you've got more cars than you've got people, then something's something's not working. Something's right. kind of busted. Or if we have no cars and no people because everybody does all that stuff in another town nearby, right. then you probably also have some other functional imbalances that also need to be addressed. Right. Uh, and so that, that's the other end of the spectrum of, of not hopefully you have one or the other, but if you have neither at midday. Right, right. Yeah. Right, right. That probably means you know, in, in some places obviously have different cycles that are different throughout the day and we're not saying that's the only way to, to measure it but it does say something it, it says something about the life cycle of a place seasonally a life cycle of a place during different times of the day uh, maybe around the end of school or the beginning of school is a busy time in that particular part of town but there has to be there has to be some level of activity and it can't just be around uh, some sort of rush hour commute because that can be it's hard to to examine whether or not people are there because they live there and they work there 
or it's because they're passing through. Well, and quite frankly, the the cities that we see that are active at those hours uh, are the ones that financially are not very productive. Right. They're the ones that are not, you know, long term going to be very successful financially because they just, you know, I, I think about like where I'm from, Brainerd Baxter. Baxter, what's Baxter's Main Street? Well, it's Highway 371. Right. And all the frontage roads along it. And there's never any people there. There's tons right. of cars. Uh, it's physically cars impossible for anybody to be on foot. Yeah. There. If you're on foot there, something is drastically wrong. Right. So, yeah. you know, in, in that place, you would never have more people than cars. You would always have more cars than people. And subsequently, that's not a very productive environment. I mean, it's a really expensive, very low returning environment. All right. Number two, and you know, I, I, I know this is one that I've heard before. I think that there's uh, a quote out there from probably someone who I should know. But number two builds on this notion of a place. If there were a revolution in your town, would people instinctively know where to gather to participate? I, I've heard that statement before, and I don't know who said it, but I, I think it's a really good one in that it points out uh, intuitively this notion not only of a physical place being a, a place that has some definition, but also the kind of so, social, cultural cohesion of a community. The, the fact that, you know, do people feel tied together? Would they know where to gather? Would they know where to go to interact with other people? Is there just a natural gathering spot within the community? What do you think about this one? Well, I'll give a little shout out to our friends over at the National Coalition of Deliberation and Dialogue, who, uh, whose conference we were able to uh, participate in briefly uh, last month, uh, in, actually in October, it's already been uh, six weeks since then. But we talked about this idea of how do you have a conversation, Ferguson came up a lot during their conference and yeah. proceedings, and the question becomes, at the cornerstone of a democracy in this, in this, in this country, um, we have to have a place to talk. Right. We have to have a place to actually carry out some format of democracy. And in so many places, and, and it's very appropriate that we're here in the north, the, the northeast, because town centers actually have a meeting. There's a center of a town. And in that center was a plaza, was a public building, was, was the very underpinnings of democracy in the colonies that became this country. And so... To be able to actually have a physical place that has a connection to the thought process of the dialogue that it takes to maintain and make decisions about said place, um, there is a, there should be, and I think there is a strong connection there. And where places lack that physical place or even the perception of that place, you end up ending up anywhere you can find. And so, in the in the very in the, in the social unrest that has happened around Ferguson. It's happening in a street in Ferguson because there is physically nowhere else to be. Right, right. And so it, 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 I, I, what, it, what the need of that is very interesting is to, to make those connections and to say, well, if we have to have dialogue and if we are going to have this form of government, um, we better actually have places that First Amendment rights can be exercised. Um, and you can't really just do that in the middle of the street. You without, can't go out there in the strode. And yeah, you can't go out there right. in the strode because, like, people kind of have to drive right. there, through right. there, right? Like, it, it, it does cause an actual problem to, right. like, functioning society uh, as opposed to having a place where that can happen. So I was on NPR uh, back in September when I wrote the piece Strode Nation about Ferguson. 
And one of the things that they asked me, they, they asked about a sense of civic pride. And they said something about, you know, do people in Ferguson just lack civic pride or don't feel connected to their community? And, and I made the point that, look, Ferguson is designed to not have right. civic pride. It's, des- it's designed to not have a, se- a civic nature to it. There is no town square. There is no gathering place. Every neighborhood is essentially segregated from every other neighborhood, and they're all divided up, Euclidean zoning by price point, right? So big houses are next to big houses. Medium-sized houses are next to medium-sized houses. There's no interaction between the two. Apartment buildings are over here in a different place. And so the whole nature of a cohesive community uh, is is – is essentially absent by design. Yeah. Undermined to, to the extent that it's all fragmented out into said colors on a map. So the question I've got, one of the things that's been kind of presented to me in the last couple of weeks with, you know, the whole Ferguson conversation kind of recurring now and circling back around, uh, someone sent me some things about how the design of post-World War II America was actually intentional in order to quell mm. People actually, you know, we don't want a Tiananmen Square or a Tahir Square here, so let's just not have a square. Right. And, you know, now people are taking to the interstates, they're taking to the strodes. Yeah, look at Hong Kong. I mean, right. whoa, the, the unrest in Hong Kong is amazing. Like, those those images are, are nuts because some of those places were just like, they were, they were in places you'd expect and others were just like, you know what, actually the best thing we can do is go out to the, to the interstate and just shut the place down. Right, right, right. <laughs> You're like... That's kind of crazy, yeah. but actually, to get a hundred thousand people, you can do it. You can right. you can go a really right. long way to shutting your government down if you do that, um, and and especially if you don't actually have the right to do so, you you really have to do something a little bit more intense uh, well, to get your point across. And I don't necessarily buy into the theory that you know we built these things basically so that we wouldn't have social unrest, but I, I do think that it is fascinating today that to me the really great places, the really great towns. The places that I would say are, are trending towards being strong towns are places where that social cohesion is not something that has to be manufactured. Mm-hmm. It's something that just exists. And it exists not only because of the people, but because I think people want this social cohesion wherever they're at. I think that the design of the place actually lends itself more to that subtle social cohesion than you would find in places where, you know, people... I, I've talked about how when I lived in the uh, the condo unit in uh, in Elk River, ex-urban area in Minnesota, I didn't know... You know, I lived in a sixplex. Right across the street from me was a sixplex. I did not know a single person in either my sixplex or the <laughs> sixplex across the street. And we were there for 30 months. All right. I never met... I mean, we'd wave to them, we'd see them, we'd say hi, but I never met them. I didn't know any of their backstories. I didn't know any of their struggles. I didn't, I didn't know anything about them. Uh, it seems to me like uh, you know a strong town would have be a little bit more designed to have uh, kind of a natural sense of civic interaction. Fair? That's fair, and I think it's only appropriate that this point of time that we're entering now in in a transition where we have to have a lot of dialogue because there's no way forward in a, in a, in a orderly manner, right? We're going to have to continuously reconnect and have discussion uh, in order to create 
whatever the next steps are because it's not immediately clear what those are going to be. Number three, imagine your favorite street in town didn't exist. Could it be built today if the construction had to follow your local rules? It's one of my favorites, actually. I, I love this one, too. Because, I, you know, I think about, like, in my hometown of Brainerd, my favorite street is not the, the downtown, any of the downtown streets. They're actually kind of wretched in many ways. Uh, my favorite street is this little street called Kingwood. And I love it because the, the street itself is about 24 feet wide with parking on both sides. The build, the houses are kind of up near the street. They've got the front porches on them that come up to the sidewalk. It's a, it is an intimate, tight street. And it's kind of up against, it's up against the river. It's on the edge of, of town. It's one of these places that uh, I think has been overlooked or was just impossible to retrofit with the car. And because it was only a block and a half long, the engineers at some point said, ah, screw it, it's not worth the fight to try to retrofit this place. Let's just leave it. And it is my favorite street in town. It's just, it has such neat character. And you, you could not rebuild it today. You would not be allowed to. Yeah. And I, uh, I think, when I think of being destroyed, I actually think of uh, – <laughs> My neighborhood, not that it was destroyed, but it was actually uh, my, my neighborhood node at 38th and Nicollet where we, where we had the center of the National Gathering was actually, we ate dinner actually in the, the restaurant where uh, that was the beneficiary uh, to us, our neighborhood. We were the beneficiaries of this restaurant moving into our neighborhood because their previous location had had a fire and the building had burned and it was essentially destroyed in such a way that it was structurally unsound and, and basically had to be torn down to a certain extent in order to sort of rebuild it again. But they realized what a struggle it was going to be and how long it was going to take to rebuild the existing building uh, in a Euclidean zoning. And this is in the heart of, central, of South Minneapolis, which is further south actually than, uh, than my neighborhood. And uh, in a similar kind of node, it was a streetcar node, but... They knew that the rules were of such a way that it was going to be such – for the business owner, they knew it was going to take so long to rebuild in that location that they actually decided to move 12 blocks further north and, and a few streets uh, further uh, east to a new location in a sort of semi-unproven neighborhood of that sort. There were some restaurants already there but not of their type. And decide we're going to open up shop here. Well, as it turned out, rather than go through the headache of right, and yeah. as it turned out, because of the clientele of that existing business, that a felt bad that they were going to be out of business for a little while until they reopened again, but b that they, everyone liked that business and they followed. You know, they already had a clientele and they opened. Sure. That not only that, but on top of those people coming, there was my whole neighborhood of folks who were like, "Holy cow, they're in our backyard now!" Right. And so they were very successful, and actually that ended up being one of the main catalysts to sort of additional people moving to that neighborhood node where we had empty storefronts and other things going on. And so all those existing buildings actually moved forward. But what was funny is that uh, one of the uh, gentlemen uh, who was involved with that uh, uh, and is also a follower of Strong Towns was telling me this story. He's like, yeah, I, I'm involved with the Zoning Board of Appeals. And I had to help the, the building owner make the case to the, to the Zoning Board of Appeals to get his variances so he could rebuild that building again. Right. Exactly as what, it was. What was there. Right. Yeah. And so you're like, holy cow. So I tell that story all the time to people in Minneapolis about 
what are zoning codes, what are they actually giving us? Because we have a lot of people who don't want new development in Minneapolis. We don't like this. We don't like that. We don't want tall buildings. We don't want buildings like this. We don't build I was like, so what do you want? Because the rules that we have right now don't give us anything close to what you're describing as what you want. Right. Which means then <clears throat> every project has to go through this excruciatingly risky and like terrible process of people fighting over stuff until they come to the end. And then we're all sort of unhappy with the product. But that's because we have a set of rules that actually doesn't allow us to put back what we had. Right. Which we all agree we kind of like. One of the one of the brilliant things about Andres Duani and really the whole new urbanism, when, when I first encountered it and got involved, was uh, the, the idea that you would go out, identify the stuff within your community that you thought was great, code that, like right. actually take a tape measure, measure it out, figure out what worked, and then write a code that did that. Yeah. And and the, the thing that's so brilliant about it is it's such common sense, right? Like, uh, wow, I really like this street. Yeah, don't we all like this street? Well, what if we built another one just like it? Yeah, that would be cool. Well, let's go out and measure it and then write a code that says you can build this exact street. It's amazing to me how our zoning codes have absolutely no relationship or, 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 or proportion to what we actually like or want to see in our communities. And even today in 2014, when we've had, you know, two decades of people kind of pushing back in a very technical way on this stuff, we're still at a place where most zoning codes, and I don't even think we're talking the majority, I think we're talking almost all zoning codes uh, have this particular problem with them. You can't build back the good stuff. All right. Number four. This one is mine, and I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll get into some nuance on this one, but this one is one that I kind of came up with and insisted on. and Which is funny because now I'm probably the prime beneficiary. Yeah, of you said. are. Yeah, you are. <laughs> it is an, number four, is an owner of a single-family home able to get permission to add a small rental unit onto their property without any real hassle? Now, when I first wrote this one, it was, you know, is an owner jargon, 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 jargon. And it was, it, it didn't work because what I was trying to get into is, you know, the, the strong town's concept of maturing a neighborhood and always uh, having the neighborhood being able to move to the next increment of growth, the next increment of intensity. What is that? And what I realized as I tweaked this and sent it around to people and got feedback was that people were getting hung up with it. Almost all of our neighborhoods that are stuck are single-family neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Nothing but single-family. Nothing but single-family neighborhoods, and they're stuck. And so to me, uh, as opposed to having some grand, you know, can you, every neighborhood move to the next increment, I said, let's just look at the 98% of what we have built that's stuck. Can that get to the next smallest increment of development by right, without any effort, without any, you know, complications? If that can't happen, then I have some deep concerns. But if that can happen, then you you know you you you're on the right track, at least for the the vast majority of your properties within your city. You actually are going through this process. We are, and uh, hopefully tomorrow, and hopefully by the time everyone hears this, uh, that it will be fully passed as we expect at this point. That the city of Minneapolis Council will. Uh, Final, we'll take the final measure to approve 
Uh, it's been already approved twice in the various processes along the way and committees of so of the types, many types. And we will have accessory dwelling units, the jargony jargon uh, term for places that you can rent uh, and places that you can have a, a other place to live besides your single family house on a lot. And accessory dwelling units will be legal across the entire city of Minneapolis. Now, one of the pushbacks, there's, there's two real pushbacks. One that I've gotten on this particular strength test number, but one just on ADUs, the dwelling units in general. Uh, here's that one. Nobody wants to live in a 400 square foot apartment. Nobody wants to live in these places. What, why do you think this is going to do anything for housing prices and housing costs and people's quality of life and your ability to uh, you know, extract more wealth, uh, build more wealth in your house? Well, well, nobody wants this stuff, Jim. And uh, hopefully you're queuing me up because if, if, if you weren't, then I'm definitely taking in this direction anyhow. But I always <laughs> I always love to think of uh, our good friend Joe Minicosi and his hand-raising yeah. uh, exercise he does uh, because people ask him that same question all the time because he, he also is talking about building value and what's this increment of value. And so he asks people the question, how many people... How many of you would live in a 400-square-foot apartment? Yes. And there's like... You know, a handful of people, maybe at best, who raise their hands. And then he asked the follow-up question. How many of you have lived in a 400-square-foot apartment? About half the room at right. least usually raises their hand, and I usually as well. I lived in a 400-ish square-foot apartment yeah. um, in, uh, in, in Pasadena, California for four years, actually. Um, We've with, all been through this phase. Yeah, and, there, it's not, and for some people, it won't be just a phase in the future, right? So for some people, um, it is... A choice, and it's a choice that we make again. Uh, and the reason why they're called granny flats is because at different stages in life, people have different needs, and sometimes they can predict those needs, and sometimes they can't predict those needs. And uh, my mother-in-law calls it her retirement plan, although she lives in a single-family house that is on one floor, and while my house is on many floors, and my ADU would be on two floors as well, I doubt she will ever live there. But the, to her, the concept of somebody who's lived in the city of Minneapolis for her entire life of 60-some years, she actually finds it very helpful that she won't get stuck in a nine-story senior apartment complex by herself somewhere out in the burbs. Right. But that is that is her definition of the end of life. Well, here's the other pushback. And I actually, when we posted the strength test, a number of people uh, wrote, this is all great except number four. I hate number four. I don't want number four. I live in a college town, and this would just make my town a ghetto if you had, a, you know, accessory apartments everywhere. And I find this to be, you know, no offense to everyone who's, you know, mad about number four right now. I find that to be the dumbest critique because if you live in a college town and your concern is that, well, these people will just make them all rentals, wouldn't you rather have the rental be one unit apartment behind a single family home? where the Scattered person, all over the city. Scattered all over the city than like concentrations of frat houses? I mean, isn't that the thing you're uptight about? Yeah, and that's actually what – we have a lot of liberal arts colleges uh, in – interspersed specifically in St. Paul, actually, on, on the west side of St. Paul. Uh, and I happen to know quite a bit about this uh, through various interactions of our friends and who have worked around these places. And these single-family neighborhoods, especially the, the more affluent ones who live near the university, because it happens to be a nice part of that end of the town, is a nice part of town. And they're like, oh my gosh, we cannot stand any more student housing. Well, the reason you can't stand any more student housing is because 
either A, the college has bought up the houses so that their students have some place to live nearby, or B, what little housing is available to students is all these, like, the most terrible properties left over run by slumlords. You've so suppressed and bastardized the market that right. that's all, all that manifests right. itself. Right. So anytime you can find a sliver of property or near the college, it becomes that right. because there's literally no other affordable options. And people, if you're in the middle of the city, you're not driving into town, you know, to that kind of situation. And so we actually would have a lot more control and a lot less hotspots of one one guy happening to buy up a couple properties and putting it, things together and having, you know, eight rental properties in a row on one street because you you wouldn't do that and or you would be able to own something and if you were going to have a nuisance, if it was going to be a nuisance, at least you get to make money off that nuisance. Right, right. right? Well, right. And, 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 you know, if the, if the student is really bad, you can uh, kick them out. Right. I mean, get a different tenant. But I think it reinforces this thought process of, of threats right. versus opportunities. Yeah, totally. And if we actually had more opportunities to build local wealth, and not basically allow that wealth to be concentrated in a handful of few people who own these commercial properties that everyone's renting from, and they put no, they put no. Uh, all, the, all the market incentives are to let it just rot. Right, rot right. because you know we have this this wheel of of people coming through who you right. know, need a place to live, and wouldn't we have also better housing if if that was true? Because we'd be investing the money that's coming into our community, which is the whole reason why you have. You know, you, you, there's, there's a number of reasons why this works, but one of the main reasons why you put up with it is because one of the most stabilizing factors of any place that has a high, place of higher education is that people keep coming. Right. right. It's a net importer of, of wealth into a community. Right. And so if you are basically uh, creating a situation where you're letting somebody else collect all that wealth income, mm -hmm. then you, you're basically letting your community you know, you get the worst of the equation without getting the best. Right. Totally. All right. Number five. If your largest employer left town, are you confident the city would survive? Now, a couple little nuances on this one. Some people, when we posted this, emailed me and said, I don't think it should be largest employer. I think it should be largest industry. Uh, in other words, you know, if, if it's a tech sector or if it's a manufacturing of snowmobiles or whatever it is, you know, if, if your largest industry left town, are you confident the city would survive? The other thing that's interesting, especially when I started to look at my town, who's the largest employer? Right. It's the government. <laughs> you know, it's the <laughs> county wah, government. Wah, wah. Yeah, exactly. The largest employer in my city is the school district. That yep. is the number one employer. The number two one. is the county government. Uh, the number three is the city government. So you you have this kind of problem where... The largest employers are, uh, you know, all government entities that are not going away. Um, how do you how do you then interpret this? I think it is important because what we're getting at here is the diversity of the workforce, the depth of the workforce, and the the notion that a good, healthy, strong, resilient place is not going to be dependent on one industry or one, uh, you know, one type of work. But we'll be able to develop this whole kind of broad spectrum of things that they do. Yet, for most cities, I think they're very similar to my hometown of Brainerd. I think they'd have the government be one of the largest employers and then not much after that. It's very true. The small town I grew up in had the same issue. The school district is the largest employer of our township. And so when you think about this, the other pushback that I saw as opposed to employer versus industry 
was to say, well, no, actually, we're really talking about a single employer because so much of our economic development strategies are about attracting single employers, right? Right, And maybe in hopes that if you attract a single employer, you're attracting a spin-off of industries. Here's an example I give about Minneapolis because we happen to have uh, in our downtown, one of the largest corporations in the country, like Target, right, the corporate headquarters. Right. And so this, we're not talking about the retail industry. We're talking about Target. Right. And what's so interesting about Target is the south side of, of downtown Minneapolis, um, sort of this chunk between the, the convention center and sort of the middle part of, um, you know, where the government center entities are picking up, is that there's this whole, like, cottage economy that happens in this, like, 12 square block area that is all companies who are there who have a little office and make something that they sell to Target and their entire existence there has to do with the fact that they they literally run products through the skyways on carts to go to Target and meet with representatives and try them out in the test shelves and like literally try to sell Target on the next iteration of their product. That all goes away if Target decides to leave downtown Minneapolis, sure. decides to leave the region, goes out of business. There's no reason for anyone to be anywhere near all those office spaces because they're there because of Target. I think that's a sort of magnetic effect that that spinoff economy. Now, if you have a huge company like Target, there's a much bigger halo. But that's what we're getting at, right? They're, they're, right. It, it, Will one thing come undone? And the question is, are you, you going to bring Walmart in if Target goes away right, and right. everyone's going to hang around? The same thing happens in in uh, in Arkansas, right? Where where where, right. where Walmart is at, you know, their corporate headquarters has the exact same thing in Bentonville, and the exact same thing has actually happened, except for a weird twist. Um, because there are people coming from all over the world in Bentonville, they've Benton the Walmart realized that the, because they're in the middle of nowhere, practically compared to, say, in the middle of a town of 300,000 people like Minneapolis, um, they realized that they actually had to um, make the town look better because people, like, <laughs> right. wanted to have a town, sure. right? They came, People come from all over the world. They're trying to check the, the best They talent. don't want just a Walmart. They don't want just a Walmart, <laughs> right? They, and so people, the, the quality of life is important. Uh. And so the Walmart Foundation actually spends lots of money trying to make sure Bentonville's town actually looks good and it like functions properly. The problem is is that it's sort of artificial to a certain extent. Sure. And so the local people who are the entrepreneurs in the community, some of them are in the downtown, but some of them are not. And again, it, it begs this question about what is the diversity of, of, of employment in your community and where is the money going after it is sort of circulating in your economy? Um, because if it's going to one place and that place moves away and takes the wealth with it, there's a whole different set of equations to um, what that means to your town and what it means to everybody else who's still left behind. Let me ask you this. Does this – obviously, I think this becomes more critical the smaller the place gets. Yeah. Or at least um, maybe not more critical, but it becomes a bigger factor in play. Uh, makes Minneapolis you fragile. Yeah. makes you more fragile. If Target left Minneapolis, it wouldn't take Minneapolis down. Right. Minneapolis is still going to be there. But then I started to think, okay, Enron and Houston. Enron didn't take Houston down. Right. Right. Of a dent, for sure. A big dent, right. Boeing in Seattle. There's a lot of conversation now that, you know, Boeing kind of, uh, I'll use the word extorting in a friendly right. way, you know, getting money to stay there. Um 
there's there's talk that that we have heard uh you know okay well maybe boeing's going to leave or maybe it should leave or maybe we'd be better off if it left I, I, is there a certain size i wonder where you reach where number 5 here becomes less relevant just because and, and is that essentially a sign of success like we've grown in size to where uh this kind of thing doesn't matter anymore you know we're so big and so diverse in our economy that we're not worried about it well, and there's another spinoff from that thought process to say uh, Target bought a bunch of property in a second ring suburb and they're moving a bunch of their operations out there. And the funny part is they, they really? they're really doing this. And huh. actually, theoretically, the, the rail, light rail line, uh, build it and they will come, is yeah. may end essentially in this corporate campus that they're trying to build out there. Huh. The funny part is they're trying to move people. Uh, the people they're trying to move are folks like their IT department. Ah, uh, the downtown geeks. The downtown geeks, which is funny yeah. because um, if you're trying to compete with, say, Google right. and compete with anything else in, say, Seattle. Who Where are, are they putting it? Eden Prairie? No, it, it, it's going to be up north, up the Botno line. Oh, up, no, up, are in you Brooklyn, In Brooklyn Park. Oh, Right, gosh, Edge yeah. 694 there's, there's in the middle no, of nowhere. Uh, there's no, like, hormone swapping. Uh, there's no nothing. Brooklyn it's Park, a cornfield. No. <laughs> um, that's why the, my, my transit diagram in Minneapolis-St. Paul, that, that line ends in a cornfield because that's literally the target corporate campus. It, it is. But if you think about the, the places, and people are leaving there in groves because... If the choice is to go to Target and live in Minneapolis, well, okay, at least you get to live in Loring Park and walk or bike to downtown. It's not so bad. If 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 the option is to get paid a hundred thousand dollars and work in Seattle instead, right? And the amenities that they have put together, right? Um, Brooklyn Park and the end of a light rail line that may never exist is isn't a huge selling point, right? And so it actually has a lot of different effects on well, what are we doing to actually create place? So that people want to stay here, yeah. and Mayor Mike Begin, right, told us that look, we're not going out and subsidizing Microsoft to stay here. They haven't come and asked. They're here because they can't get anywhere else where they can keep everybody they want to keep employed. Right. That's right. how I know I have a strong place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Number six. Is it safe for children to walk or bike to school and many of their other activities without adult supervision? Uh, I, I find this one to be really, really fascinating because uh, the, the idea here is kind of multifaceted. Not only is it safe for children to, to walk or bike, which is one part of this, but you also have this notion of, you know, is it safe for them to walk or bike to school and their activities and then without adult supervision? So you've got this like multi-layer thing. Okay, is it safe to bike and walk? Can they get to places they want to go? Do they have to have adults there watching them? There's a whole lot here packed into one thing that I think really gets into you know the the, the idea of what it means to build a human centric kind of place. This all sounds like a terrible idea. No supervision, <laughs> children walking and biking, uh, doing the two together. No supervision and walking and biking. Like this is Armageddon shot, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like not it, work. I mean, I don't know who came up with the idea of safe routes to school, but. They want this, yeah, right? Absolutely. Only people will be abducted and will die, you yeah. know, based on yeah. Abduction rates will will, will soar, right? And, and so this is this is this is one of these things because we actually get we hear this stuff. Mm -hmm. We also hear, oh my gosh, we're consolidating all the schools and we're taking schools out of places where we could walk to mm -hmm. and have walked to for generations. 
and putting them in places we can't do these things at all. Like it's physically not even going to be possible. What can you do to help us? And we're like, uh, wow, that's really terrible. We hear this happening all the time. We'll, right. we'll have to start working on that. And we will. And that's why it's in the strength test. Right. We want to put it out there as yeah. this is actually something we should be thinking about. But it's a weird two-sided coin, right? That we actually, A, are talking about this being a good idea. Right. And B, there are so few places left that to me now, I actually, when someone calls and, and says, hey, I'm from so-and-so, and it's a small town and wherever, I like go Google them and I'm like, oh, they still have at least one school somewhere in the middle of their town where you could walk to. Right. You guys are doing all right. A-okay. Right. Yeah. right? Like, we have something to work with here. I happen to really like the 880 people. Yeah. And I, I, I've heard some of the cycling people get upset with them. Uh, largely because you know they're they're like bike lane advocates and stuff, and you know there's a whole thought process there. I, I like the 880 people, and one of the things I like, and maybe I should just say the 880 people is the idea that we should be designing places where people who are eight years old and people who are 80 years old can get around without a car. And if we designed for those two metrics, basically everybody falls in between that and we'll be just fine. Yeah. The, the thing I like about this thing on the strength test is it does say, you know, not is it safe for Chuck and Jim to, to walk or bike. Right. Because you and I can walk and bike in quite a few inhospitable places. <laughs> I spent four years biking in Southern California. I might go to a movie tonight and walk the strode right. to the movie theater. <laughs> right. and Across I'm, the freeway. And I'm insane. up for that, right? Yeah. So, you know, but the idea is, you know, could my, could my daughter do this as a seven-year-old, you know, could, could she, would, would we be comfortable with her doing it? And that's a, that's a different test that gets to something different about a community. Yeah. We actually have been talking about all of us, uh, folks who live in, in many South Minneapolis now who are, we're in the middle of a baby boom, uh, in my, my, my family included, um, that we're going to start uh, toddlers, uh, toddlers for for uh, for uh, lack of beg buttons, essentially toddlers for safe oh, streets, right? Yeah. Because we actually have to teach our children when it is appropriate to cross a street and when you have to press a beg button, when you you do not have to press the beg button to cross the street. You get into all this, like how do you teach right, your four year old right. how to cross a street, right? Right, with all these rules, yeah. Right, like yeah. when is it safe? When is it not safe? And we realize that it's going to have to be a powerful lobby if we actually want to change things because right. luckily where we live, uh, people care about children and we actually have schools you can walk to. And so there's actually a reason for them to be out oh, we, and about. We, we care about children. We have car seats. We have car seats. Yeah. Well, that's, that's definitely <laughs> we better get out of, We better get out of number seven you want, before. You want to chime in on this? <laughs> no? Okay. All right. Oh, we better get out of number seven okay. before are we there, switch further off that path. Are there neighborhoods where three generations of a family could reasonably find a place to live all within walking distance of each other? And, and what this one really gets to is the diversity of housing within a neighborhood. Is your na- are your neighborhoods all like single price point kind of places or are they places where it, it is possible to have a, a, a multi-generations, multi-price points uh, in one spot? We're not saying that you have to go out and find multi-generations that live in a neighborhood. But if I wanted to, is there entry-level housing there? Is there mature family housing? Is there housing that would fit someone, you know, at a more senior level of their life? Is that possible within neighborhoods in your community? Because if it's not, you're forcing people into a, a, a different type of situation, one that is far less resilient. And for where I live and other than not only where I live now, but places I've lived in the past is, is the question of what type of 
housing is available and how, what is the diversity? How do you avoid monoculture? So part of what we're talking about is not only monoculture of types of housing, like a single family house, but you've talked a number of times, made reference to this idea of price points, right? Right. When, you, when a builder builds a new home, they're building it in this sort of small, narrow range, and that ends up being the range for a long time into the future because it fits in the sort of rung of the ladder. The, the problem with that is is that you create a situation where either you have very wealthy or very unwealthy people living in there, and as that rung uh, becomes more or less desirable in the ecosystem of the different monocultures being you know coexisting but being separated from each other, um, you end up in a sort of an upward or downward spiral. So the upward spiral is gentrification. You know, if you have a situation where you have lots of people in an area and they all suddenly go from one income class to another income class, and the flip side of that is where everybody goes, everything goes downhill. Flight. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, or even in a place on the edge of the community, we've seen this in California actually happening now in places um, in the uh, high deserts in the central valleys where houses that were worth $300,000 10 years ago and they were brand new are worth half of that. Right. right? And, and there's five families to a house. So... That's multi-generational housing, but not in the way that it was intended to be, <laughs> right, right? Right. And so right. is that healthy for a community? And, but what does it take to actually afford your housing to be able to do that? I think the other side of that is to say when you have a diversity of housing typology, when you have a duplex and a small apartment complex of six or eight units mixed in on the same blocks and amongst the same neighborhoods as single-family houses, you have a tolerance level, right? Right, right? You have actually a little bit of give and take because on my block – Two, block, two, two doors down from me across the street, there's a duplex, and there's also a, a small apartment complex. And so, yes, there's a few more cars parked on the street in front of my house because I have to park in, my, in front of my house and my neighbor parks in front of their house, but there's a few more cars like, sort of floating around because those people in the apartment complex and the rental units don't have a parking space out back because they just don't happen to in those units. And it's okay because the whole rest of my block is mostly single-family houses sure. with a little extra room. Now, on the flip side, in the single-family houses in the south end of town, where there's only single-family houses, people complain about how fast people drive down the streets because no one parks on them. Right, right, right. And so you have these actually other issues that pop up, like people speeding down streets, because if you just had a few cars parked on them ever... It's a traffic calming It's a traffic calming yeah. measure. It yeah. would actually be... That diversity actually brings strength. The, the other thing about this one, to me... In terms of the housing stock, mm -hmm. is this notion that you know, when we see this, uh, we look today at this one, you know, vinyl palace, and it's <laughs> like you you build these places and they fail all at the same time. Yeah. So you go out, you put in the maintenance free siding, which, as Steve Mozans pointed out, means you it's not able to be maintained. Right. So it will last for twenty five years, thirty years, and then it will all fail catastrophically at once. At the same time that your roof fails. At the same time that your driveway and sidewalks fail, at the same time that your appliances all go bad. And so what you have is when you build these neighborhoods all at one time in all the same style and all the same way, they all fail at the same time. And if there's no renewal mechanism, if there's nothing like holding its value in the neighborhood that prompts that reinvestment and that renewal, uh, you get just stagnant and decline. And that's the, you know, to me, this is getting at that a little bit too. And I, I was remiss in sort of finishing my, uh, my statement from number four about can you have a small rental property? And these two are, in my mind, glued together because I agree. I agree. Um, we know 
from where we live and having rented out one of the rooms in our house previous uh, to to uh, to now living having a family that there's a marketplace for a room at a significant cost like we were surprised actually given that we're kind of on the edge of where we think people who uh would want to rent a room would live um, we actually felt that they liked that and that we were in a place that was really great to do so and if we actually had an apartment like an adu uh in our backyard that there's a whole bunch of people who don't want to live in apartments right on top of the action that's loud sure. and that's, you know, all the things that people associate right. with some sort of density living. They really, a couple blocks off isn't bad. A couple blocks off ain't bad. It's half yeah. the price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's... it's Really? It's half the price? Well... I may move in then. Well, yeah, maybe you should. Um, <laughs> and, and because it, well, the half the price, I should say, of the alternatives, which sure. is brand new six-story housing. Right, right. Right? The granite countertops. The granite countertops and all. And, yeah. and, and, and so if you had a, a place in a neighborhood that's a little bit further away, the discount is that you're a little further away, but you also can be in a unit that has other desirable qualities depending on the type of person you are. Mm -hmm. That actually leads back to this idea of multi-generational housing because we have this idea that renters are somewhere between you know 21 and 32 and you know maybe they're, they're somebody's granny and they're 60 years old and that no one rents between you know 30 and 60. Right. 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 And that's amazingly untrue in today's society sure. and, and that's how we actually have different people of different generations and different family types and family units being able to live together um, because they actually have more than one typology that fits them and they don't have to be all sharing the same bathroom to do so. Right, right. <laughs> all right. Strong towns can feed themselves. So number eight, if you wanted to eat only locally produced food for a month, could you? Could you? Could you? My backyard, you could. Could you? I, there, I Maybe you could in Brainerd, but I don't think so. No. Gosh, I mean, you could at certain points of the year. And yeah. I we certainly did growing up on the farm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think could someone living in the city do that? It's uh, difficult. I, I, yeah, I think it'd be really, really Very difficult. difficult. Do, they, do they serve locally grown food at Applebee's? I don't. Uh, I've checked the fine print on those menus. <laughs> well, and I think part of the thing to to where I live yeah. is is that I live one block off the traditional farm to market road that was the original bridge over the river heading southward out of the Twin Cities to the farms. Sure. And so that you know the the Minneapolis farmers market is at the end of that street essentially, well in the middle of the street and down near downtown. And so that legacy of agriculture still exists. We didn't lose it. I think that's a very important thought process to any region is the connection to their local agriculture. I was in Washington, D.C. recently, and I always go looking for what is the connection to this place and the food that feeds them. Some creamery and dairy farm in, like, southeastern Pennsylvania has the corner on all the trendy, yuppie places <laughs> in the new housing that's going in on 14th Street and other places in Washington, D.C., uh, because they're selling their milk and cheese and cream in every Whole Foods local co-op and other place there. Like, it's all this one place. I was like, well, I hope they, like, stay in good business, and I imagine they will, but that economy is there. And by any accounts, there was no such places or very few seven, eight years ago in Washington, D.C., that, that connection between marketplace and the market. One of the things that's really fascinating to me, being a small town guy, is how I can go to a big city. I can go to New York City. I can go to Boston. And I eat locally 
produce foods. I mean, I like they'll have a the menu right. will say this is locally sourced from this place in upstate New York, right? And this place here, and and it's it is it is uh, fresh. It is locally grown. I live in a rural community with farms, with cows, with pigs. I cannot get locally grown food. I like I go to the restaurant, and I'm not joking you. We have Olive Garden. We have Applebee's. We right. have you know all the fast food chains. We have a, a couple of local restaurants. The food restaurants, truck in the parking lot actually had the freshest food in town. The food truck in the parking lot did, yeah, yeah. And we only allow that one day a week in this parking lot in the remote middle – I almost said a curse word there – the middle of nowhere <laughs> uh, because we hate food trucks because they you know, they're, they undermine our entire economy. But so. it, it speaks to the idea that we were weak and we're weak putting back together because yeah. we did have it and we lost it and some places we didn't totally lose it but we we like didn't keep it alive very well it barely straight straightforward but we're lucky in in Minnesota and in Minneapolis that we have a strong co-op and a strong farmers market and a strong connection to be able to help feed those people right so to know that they have a steady marketplace for a steady place to make a living that is so critical to actually building those thought processes of well, how do you eat? I think it. I, I think it is, and it's funny because this one um, has a little Kunstler esque feel to it, right? <laughs> like, can you feed yourself? Like, if, yeah. if the if if you go to the world made by hand, can you actually get food? Yeah. But I I think that this is kind of a bare minimum for what a strong town would be. I mean, if you literally can't get food, if you're reliant on places hundreds or thousands of miles away to be able to eat. You're pretty weak, right? I, I, you have to go door to door to a farm, you know, and and drive to find somebody's food. Uh, one, the, the most striking thing, and I want to leave, end with this 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 point with is when we were in Mississippi last year. Yeah. And we're driving through the Delta. Yeah. Arguably the most fertile soil on the face of this earth. Yeah. And we were actually also having a conversation with our great host from Mississippi State about how they're trying to rebuild a farmers market culture. Mm-hmm. It was just mind blowing. Mind blowing. It's like right. the, the most fertile farmland anywhere on this planet. Like right. right around us as we're driving through cotton fields. Right. Right, right over the right over the edge yeah. there into the delta. And we're and, eating, you know, McDonald's. Right. And they're like, yeah, right. we're trying to help small towns put farmers markets back yeah. together because we don't yeah. have any local producers yeah. and we have no one to no place to sell them. And then we stop in Water Valley and eat there right. <laughs> at the grocery store right, with right. the local locally sourced everything. It tasted better. It was cheaper. You know, it, like you go through the litany of things. It right. was beautiful. And it was like the one place where they start gluing everything back together. And right. you're like, what is wrong with this picture that right. we have an agricultural region in a state that it basically is completely, his economy is almost completely on agriculture. And yet that agricultural engine doesn't feed its own people. Right. It's amazing. Right. Okay, number nine. Before building or accepting new infrastructure, does the local government clearly identify how future generations will afford to maintain it? And this is kind of like the quintessential Strong Towns question. Uh, it's amazing. I didn't run into anybody doing taking this test and giving feedback on it who could say yes to that question. Right. And, and the biggest question was, gosh, how do we go about reliably measuring it? Like, right. how do we actually even start to figure this out? But I think even the fact that I, I, I'm fine with getting into that, like, how, oh, right. how would we go about doing this? But the fact that we're not even asking that question, I mean, there's something right. deeply embarrassing about the fact that we don't even we, we don't even 
we haven't even really pondered this on right. a systematic level, right? right? Like, what data would be necessary to think about right. doing this, right? right? Like, right. we don't even know. We, we need to actually think about what data would be necessary right. to know how to analyze it, to know how to answer the question. Yeah. That's how many steps we are removed from exactly. figuring this out, right? Exactly. So, to me, I, I, I feel like that is the kind of the base strong towns question. And then, number 10... Uh, this is th- this is the one that you guys pushed back on me and getting a little wonky. But then I provided you some data on why I came up with this, and I think I, I think I satisfied Andrew's concerns. But number ten, does the city government spend no more than ten percent of its locally generated revenue on debt service? This isn't something that is it like an eye test thing, right? No, you can't walk into the city and tell this. But I mean, I'm I'm thinking. You know, Carmel, uh, Indiana, right? Yeah. Uh, you walk in, look kind of flashy, meets the eye test, you know, got some things going in the right direction, maybe would score pretty high on some of these, but it has, you know, in terms of locally generated revenue and the amount of debt they have, it's it's way off the charts. Yeah. And so we we talk about other places as well where we, we've been talking about how the, uh, the uh, general... Uh, amount the average amount of debt in a place right. has slowly crept up. We, you know, in, in cities where municipal debt used to be three, four, five, eight percent, and now we're seeing twice that. It's yeah, I've seen 10, cities as high as fifty percent, fifty percent of their budget debt service. That's insane. I mean, that, that's literally crazy. And it, and we wanted to sort of draw an underline under the locally generated part, right? Because there's lots of fancy dancy accounting measures to make that fifty percent debt rate look look better than it really is, and it's all about locally generated funds, right? Well, my Not city, what, my city, kind of pushed back on on me a while back when I was talking about the debt, and they said, well. You know, our debt service is less than 20% of our budget. I'm like, yeah, but 55% of your budget is local government aid. <laughs> right, comes so, from state capital. Right, so you're actually like half the mo- less, more than half the money you generate locally uh, goes to debt service. Right. If that's really, a huge. Yeah, if the things really hit the fan, that's what you'd be on the hook for. Well, and you're taking debt out that is not like two, three year bond issuances. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are 15, 20 year bonds. So you're saying, look, we're looking out here. 10 years into the future and we're confident that the state's not going to run into any problems like they did four years ago that, you know, we're going to keep getting our local government aid year after year after year. This would be devastating, uh, you know, to try to make these debt payments without the local government aid. Yeah. Um, You know, to me, when you reach that 10% threshold, that's the threshold where the rating agencies start to take a look at it. Uh, there's obviously nuances around that and it depends on where the debt is and how it's being serviced and what the, you know, the, the debt stream is. So this is not like a, a rock solid thing, but I, I think when you're in the two, three, 5% range, it's very clear that your debt is manageable. When you start to get up into that 10% range, now we're starting to raise some question marks on, are you mistaking your insolvency problem for a cash flow problem hmm. what exactly is this debt going for is this debt an investment that you want to see a return on or are you simply just using it to lower the payments on your maintenance program and be able to you know overlay more roads than you normally would uh, if you just had to pay cash so to me this is one of those kind of red flag things and and I I think cities should be under 10% of their locally generated revenue. We've talked a lot about open data, open government, and these are the kind of metrics that we're putting us out there to actually challenge cities to be able to say yes or no. Right. To be able to actually 
have a way to put this type of information out there and to actually make it readable. We actually spent a lot of time with some of the discussion posts that went around this to say, how would we think about calculating this? Right. And that actually came up because a fellow Minnesotan said, <laughs> LGA, oh, wow, that's a big negative. We have to actually subtract that from our total budget amount. Right. That's like not insignificant amount of money for even a town, you know, like the size of Minneapolis, but a city in the state is not an insignificant amount of money. Right. And so the thought process that we actually have to think about, we, you spoke to the municipal bond analysts this fall right. and talked about, well, what is at risk? What is actually at risk? Right. And how, how well do they feel about the state capital jacking around with municipal? Yeah, yeah. And like, what does that mean for a municipal bond agency when X percent of their revenue comes from the state government and it's at the whim of a budgetary cycle? Right. Like, what is what kind of exposure does that mean for your investment? Right. And where you literally have, you know, over half the cities in the state that don't get any local government aid. Right. So it's it's not like everybody's winning. You know, everybody it's like bread and circuses where you can kind of send back and say, well, everybody benefits to some degree so like we're going to keep this gravy train going till it collapses right you're actually looking at something where there's a partisan uh coalition to do away with it yeah in in in, in 2009 and 2010 when things were difficult low government aid was on the table right and when you're talking about large structural budget deficits are we going to cut education are we going to cut you know healthcare spending are we going to cut, you know, uh, public serv or public safety budgets? No, we're going to cut what the one party was calling welfare for cities. Right? <laughs> Screw them, people. Right. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, to me, uh, especially in a place like Minnesota, where you're making, you know, generation length debt services, uh, based on projections of revenue sources that are that insecure, I, I think it's it's reckless. And to me. You should be able to answer yes to this one. We're, we're, we can take care of our own debts. Plus, if you're a city and you are making investments in the future, there really aren't any cities where uh, you need to be taking huge amounts of debt on to grow, right? Mm -hmm. So really, what cities largely use debt for is cash flow. We have a bunch of roads that need to be maintained. We don't have the tax base uh, or, we, or we don't have the revenue stream to do it all at once. So we're going to take on some debt and then pay that off with our cash flow. That's a very acceptable thing to do if your uh, tax base is actually generating enough revenue over a life cycle, over a generation to maintain everything you built. When it isn't, all you're doing is just taking on debt. And, you know, extending the day when you actually have a reckoning. So you get to a city like Ferguson where last year they spent $800,000 on interest on their debt. They spent $25,000 on sidewalk maintenance. That's, they're, they're, they're underwater in a way that cannot be recovered from. And it's largely because of this notion. There was no, there was nothing that was a buffer for them taking on more and more and more debt and pretending that they could solve the, their pretending that their insolvency problem was actually a cash flow problem. I think the final piece on this was is to basically for all of you out there listening is to actually think this through, right? As 
listeners of Strong Towns podcast and, and perhaps reading the blog and so forth to actually go, because we talked a lot about Minnesota in this particular case because we know it very well, but this particular type of thing is very different in every state out there. Yeah. And some places can't take on revenue. They can't bond against certain revenue streams. They can't do this. They can't do that. And so we actually were talking to some folks here in Rhode Island today about how their roads are paid for. And it's actually not paid for locally at all. Like they don't pay for anything locally. And so there is actually like no percentage because if they don't get money falling from the sky from state and federal sources and actually mostly federal sources, they just don't do anything. And so... It's that, one of the crazier schemes. Yeah, we're going to actually have to have more about this because we like <laughs> it's like a Ponzi scheme, you know, inside a Ponzi scheme leveraged against a Ponzi scheme. Uh-huh. We're like, what? Yeah. They, they let you do who? What? <laughs> and so, uh, it, again, once again begs the question of how do you – do you even have control over locally produced revenues? Right, right. Can, can you even actually physically under the circumstances right now – create a situation by which this is possible. Right, right. All right. Um, I, I know there were a couple that we took off the list. Is there, in the in the closing moments here, is there anything to you that didn't make the cut that you want to make sure we talk about? Or now you're going to look at them all again. I, I'm, I'm, you know, we at one point we pared this down to like 14. Yeah. And said we want to get it down to 10. And I took off four <laughs> and asked if anybody had any objections and nobody did. Um, you know, there's we some. We did the terms on four. We were, there's something that we were uncertain. Well, I think I wanted to say that the, what, the spinoff of one of them was, I think, about playing in the front yard, which I think was we turned into the school one in part. But again, can your, one of the thought processes, well, can your children play, you know, in their front yards? and be unsupervised and what does that mean what does that mean about the street what does it mean about the yard what does that mean about the neighborhood what does that mean about the investments that have been made in all three of those things to actually allow that we're trying to get at an eye test thought process that's connected to much deeper set of ideas right because it is it is not just one thing that typically makes that very easy to sort of imagine picture in your mind possible um, there, there's, there's not just one thing. It's lots of things. That's a strong town. And that's why when people ask us, well, tell me where a strong town is at. There's such a multitude of different aspects that need to be accounted for that no one place has accounted for all of them yet. And so we're hoping actually by finding really great examples of each of these 10 and maybe more in the future uh, ideas that will be able to cobble together the sort of tapestry of a strong town from the acts of many. Do you think that there are any on here that are inherently unfair? I mean, because I, I look at this and say, to me, I feel like a, a real strong town should be able to answer yes to all of these. And, and I don't find any of them to be uh, unreasonable. In other words, I, I think this is one of those things that I feel like I could give to my dad. And my dad would read it and say, yeah, you know, this is... This is common sense. You should be able to do all these things. I think some of that fell off the list from the 20 and, and then out of 14-ish. And then I think some of those that fell off the list, I think were very applicable to certain places in the country, certain size places, certain... There was there was definitely some out there that were uh, more applicable in, in, in certain contexts than others. And I think that's maybe why they didn't make the final cut. But I think... In part, there there is more to this, and that, to me, my part, my two cents when we had the final conversation before we, we put this up, was to say that we want this conversation to continue because the definition of what a strong town is 
is constantly evolving, incrementally up, out, and more intense. And so each one of these needs a little bit of scrutiny. It also needs examples, right? Did, does getting this actually create a situation where we don't get a strong town? Is there a false positive as well? Right. It's also an interesting conversation yeah, we yeah. can continue to have about the tenets on this list and maybe others that would be better or more that we can add in the future that this list has to evolve in order to maintain with the evolution of what we're seeing as places try to think these things through and, and make them actually happen if they're not already happening. Well, I tell you what, everybody out there listening, uh, if you get a chance, go to the website, strongtowns.org. At the very bottom, you can, there's a search box. You can just type the Strong Town Strength Test and go through and rank your community. Let us know where you sit. What's your score out of 10? Uh, my hometown of Brainerd, I've scored a 2 out of 10. I think we looked at Minneapolis and said 6 or something like that, 6 or 7. Like that, yeah. Uh, It'd be interesting to start cataloging places around the country, where they're at. And I'd like to see if, if anybody could get up to 8, 9, or 10. Uh, it'd be really cool to be able to identify that truly strong town and maybe go there and check it out, right? It'd be fantastic. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody, and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. trying to become a law. I realize that. But you know, son, there's actually an even easier way to get things done around here. It's called an executive order. I'm an executive order and I pretty much just happened. <laughs> and that's it. Wait a second. Don't you have to go through Congress at some point? Oh, that's adorable. You still think that's how government works.